Dr. Coons, we didn't talk about collapse last episode. We just talked about the loss of privacy. And so is the loss of privacy actually a collapse of our civilization or is it part of its enlightenment and its growth toward being what it really ought to be? I think it is the worst kind of collapse because economically I could eventually learn how to provide otherwise for me and mine. Militarily, I could figure out what went wrong, adjust to some kind of new kind of life based on what happened in a war. Politically, I could change the system that we use to govern ourselves. But what happens when I lose privacy is that I lose the capacity to have a human soul that is capable of contemplation or reflection. Because I, there's always noise. There are always people around. Someone's always talking or waiting to talk to me. And the irony of a lot of that today is that we don't know how to talk to each other. There are lots of people who don't know how to interact with other human beings. But some other human agency or bot <laughs> programmed originally by a human is waiting to talk to them through their phone. So I think that the collapse of privacy is an enormous collapse, not only of things basic to American life, such as the constitutional liberties I mentioned last week, but it is a collapse of the capacity to have a soul capable of contemplation or reflection on life, on what is going on, on how the stars got to be where they are. And one way to notice this is how when the Bible talks about the existence of God, it presumes its obviousness. His power and divinity are made known to them. And those things are simply not obvious because our souls are so dulled. It's not only a function of skies being insufficiently dark because of light pollution. So I can't look at the stars. So I don't think about where they came from or how marvelous they might be. It's also that I don't really know anything about myself because I've never needed to because my mind is a collection of memes and videos and reports from my smartwatch on how well I slept or whatever. And so I am constituted as a human being now by data collected about me and that some of which is reported back to me. So I think that the collapse of privacy, whether you're talking about the government or you're talking about your smartwatch, that is the worst kind of collapse. And I think that is, that is why we have the kinds of distress, especially suicide, loneliness, drug use, that we have in the numbers and in the proportions that we have them. We have all the symptoms of being people who are living in a kind of hell. And that is different than simply economic deprivation or political upheaval or military defeat. Right. Those could all come together and live together and be part of one another. Of course, I admit that. But this is a lot different from saying, you know, the executive branch has gotten out of control or, you know, we really shouldn't have uh, tried to do that with the Navy SEALs or, you know, um, modern we, monetary we, policies, not yeah, monetary policy. <laughs> those, those are all part of it. But I think the collapse of privacy, that is a space in which I can exist and reflect on existence, my own and the stars and lots of other things that is much more destructive of life. And I think that is why we have changed so rapidly as a people, especially since the advent of smartphones in our opinions and what we think is normal and what we think is permissible or good. And it's not just because of the power of propaganda. It's also because our privacy, a place for reflection, like, I mean, just think about it. You you're not you're not looking at media all day except maybe if you listen to the radio at night or turn on the tv there's no phone there's no internet and so what you're doing is at night before you go to bed you are thinking about what happened that day mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that sounds utterly pedestrian and kind of silly but it's really not because 
at this point, probably you're looking at your phone before you go to bed. And then when you wake up, you're looking at your phone. Yeah. And how much of that thinking about your day comes in the, uh, like in the form of family conversation and memories of the previous week, memories of the previous year, yeah. uh, shared experiences, how today integrates with that. And whether you're conversing or whether you're able to just ponder it while you look at the stars without all the light pollution, you know, that would have been a, a peaceful way to live. I, I'm reminded of, there's so many things in there, Dr. Goons. I'm reminded of, you know, the story, I forget where I, where this came from, but you know, the, the American businessmen trying to convince the third world fishermen to go to college, get a job, you know, get involved in civilization. Uh, and at the end of a long rigmarole and a bunch of questions, the reason is because then you'd be able to, you know, uh, live on a beach and, and do what you want all day. And the fisherman's like, yeah, that's what I do, <laughs> you know? So, so there, there's that. But you, you also remind me of this. I had, a, I had an experience recently that is not uncommon. I've had this experience before. I think many people have, but for my part, it's been less common because I've been detethering, meaning, you know, removing uh, yeah. what technology from my life, except in very categorized and specific places, but by and large attempting to live uh, both detethered and even uh, non-augmented, right? Uh, and uh, what still just blows my mind is that I can, I can come home from wherever, and if I open my iPad and just glance at it, and there's notification, and I click on that, I'm suddenly in a two-hour emotional deal with someone who I did not give permission to argue with me or start a conversation with me about these things, who I don't know, and who has, by the power of the age, asserted a presence that formerly I had no way of like backing out of. I had no way to be like, oh, I don't have to respond. Now, I, I've, I'm training myself to respond less, right? Ignore, um, yeah. mark, mark and avoid. Um, sure. But uh, still, though, the, the power of that notification of a stranger's conflict to enter my life and readjust the next several hours just on its own, um, to me, that's the most demonic, demonic thing of all of this. That there, there is yeah. no real room for contemplation because at any given time, anybody in the whole planet has the right to interrupt you. And that's a that's a potent distraction right there, let yeah, me say. Yeah, and I, I, I think that that has to do with the availability of notification. I, I want to say this in favor of the internet before I say a lot of other things this hour against the internet. I will say in favor of the early internet, which obviously began as a, as a defense advanced research project agency thing, DARPA, um, also called ARPA, and was connected to academic institutions that we mentioned last time originally, and then spread out from there, is that there, there was a time, maybe roughly 20 years ago, when the internet was largely an anonymous place. And there is a great degree of value in being anonymous when you're talking to strangers about something, because you could connect with, especially in forums, people who knew incredible amounts of stuff about things that you had only thought a little bit about. And because it was anonymous, it wasn't really personal. And like in the sense, in the way that social media is. Hmm. So we have evolved from something that was really much more obviously about the movement of information to something that is much more obviously about a certain kind of consumer experience which is like what you mentioned with the prevalence of notifications and the non-anonymity of things like social media has become something that is much more emotionally intense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like I, I remember learning, this is a very long time ago under you know some other username I no longer even recall about all kinds of historical facts. Well, I couldn't learn about those in my, you know, public high school library. So there were lots of things to learn and it was glorious. Those are the kinds of things that were made possible because of the relative anonymity of it. And the fact that at the time in say 1999 or 2003, the federal government was still not terribly interested in involvement in individual citizens use of the internet. Unless you were on some kind of, you know, honeypot, politically extreme website, which, 
you know, full disclosure, I know people like to speculate about whether I'm on Twitter or something. Full disclosure, I'm not on Twitter. Also, I was not on any kind of <laughs> website that the federal government would have been interested in in 2003. Um, I was not a domestic terrorist in any sense of, in that year. Unless you were there, you could say whatever you wanted. I mean, you could still kind of say whatever you wanted, even on YouTube as late as roughly like 2015. So once the internet became so widespread that it became a force for political movement and change, right. also in directions ad, you know, adverse to the desires of our regime, that's when it became censored. It was already, it was already not what it had been in 2000 or 2001 in that the rise of social media corralled many people into certain places where they begin to interact with each other as, you know, for lack of a better term, normies with their face uh, as themselves talking to each other and people like that. And there's, you know, there's nothing, it's serving the same purpose letters always did. I mean, you might as well get people get angry at your great, great grandparents for writing letters as people for using Facebook. I might quibble there, but go on, go ahead, go, go for it. Just that, um, well, First, you got analog versus digital in terms of the medium, and and I'm after again a year and a half of analog writing versus digital writing. I'm just convinced there's there's a whole other power to it in terms of what the spirit it takes from you to do, uh, both to write and to receive e communications. It, it drains your willpower in ways that a letter does not, and then also the letter has ongoing permanent value. It retains a an actual existence in your world if you want it to. You can reread yeah. it and all this and find it again later and these kinds of things. So there's there's that side of it. Um, oh, I had another part of it too, internet norminess. Um, yeah, no, it's not real. I mean, uh, we, we talked last episode a little bit about bots and uh, we're going to get into apps a little more here. So maybe this kind of connects in that way. Uh, yeah. But honestly, I don't think at this point, I don't think people are really talking to each other on the, to each other on the internet. I think that the internet has formed a, a capacity to consume our information that we put into it and kind of botify us into um, these pressure <laughs> systems and algorithms that okay, press is, each other, it, right? Yeah, this is in, well, this is a this is an interesting permutation of dead internet theory. Okay, which good. is the theory that the internet is largely run by bots, and I, I really should put this. I'll probably send this to Jonathan for the show notes. There's a very interesting post on Agora Road, which is which is nostalgic about about the '90s internet promulgating dead internet theory, which is that the internet is largely actually inhabited by bots. And, and I have, I have noticed that just in my own personal experience of the internet mm-hmm. is that so many more things. And that's how you get, you know, the same message about I'm fully vaccinated, but I support more COVID lockdown measures in the exact same wording across all these accounts on Twitter of apparently British subjects tweeting within the same like 12 hours. So there are bots everywhere. I do. I think there are people communicating on the internet. They are probably legacy people from a different generation. I, I'm not trying to say that there is no communication going on. What I'm trying to say is that the value of the, the communication is so um, devalued, uh, lack of a better term, that it cannot be compared to writing a letter in any real way. And uh the other piece that I would add to this is the time that it takes to write the letter, send the letter, receive the letter, punt the letter, write back. Yeah. That expansion of time also uh, increases the value of the communication and that the speed with which you may respond to somebody on the internet decreases the value of the communication. In fact, that very conversation I'm talking about, I would contend that the argument existed because it was on the internet. And that if it had been a face-to-face conversation, a letter-written conversation, it wouldn't have been able to escalate. It would it would have taken months to escalate, right? But instead, uh, we are we're able to do these things so quickly, um, and uh, it does seem to have a mind of its own. Whether or not it's it's all these bots that are inhabiting the internet, or whether, as you and I have kind of surmised from time to time, there's there's darker powers kind of moving through these waves one way or the other. Uh, and why would we think they can't and don't manipulate us? Um, I just, I'm, I'm not convinced that when I write something and it goes into my discord, it functions as I intend it to. In fact, I'm quite 
convinced it functions according to the system. Now, the Discord that I run, we're trying to manage that system from the inside so that it's not completely controlled by the outside. And I believe there is conversation that goes on there. In fact, hey, you guys, have you found the brief history of panel? <laughs> Jeez. The, the brief <laughs> history of power channel on Us the Chill, the Mad Christian Discord server. If you haven't, you should, because there is real sharing of information that goes on there. But, I mean, look at what Discord is and why they call it Discord. How clear is any of this information? It, it's not. And and while, yeah, you said this a couple of weeks ago, you can learn all that you want about this or the other thing in the greatest detail ever, but yeah. it, it isn't really becoming part of your life. Um, not for most people, at least, right? The only way you're going to use the internet to get information that's part of your life is if the internet's only a very small part of your life. And and that's not what it is. So that's where I'm, I'm going to quibble on just the, this is off the letter part, right? I just think that you're right. The The need of a human to communicate is why they wrote letters. And so it's, it's trying to fill the same need. But as a, as a form of medium, it is so vastly different that I don't think you can defend it on that basis. If you really would like to, to have a a good extended conversation with grandma, write her a letter. I mean, really do it. See what happens. I mean, it, it'll take a while, but you will know people in ways that you're never going to get to know them on the internet. The internet's just too fast. There was an investment in what he called graphology by a guy named Ludwig Klages because he presumed this developed from his study of human character that so much could be discerned about human beings from the ways that they express themselves and the ways that they made marks. And that disappears to some degree with text, whether on your, you know, on your messaging app or somewhere on your desktop. I think that I don't think I have the same faith in the power of, of various media that you do. My objection to the internet is more about its configuration than the medium, because there were people that were completely overwhelmed by telegrams and <laughs> and letters. Well, it was a stunning um, breakthrough, and it, it changed things dynamically then too. Yeah, I, yeah, I get that. it was too, it was too much. It was too much. I'm kind of skeptical about <laughs> everything that that isn't people talking to each other at this point. Not not really, let's say mystically, but as to its profitability, that is, yeah. they're all good supplements to face-to-face -face communication with other people and contemplation of the things that you've actually seen and heard for yourself. They're good supplements. And at this point, a lot of things that could have been learned face-to-face -face now have to be learned from the internet because your parents didn't pass it on to you face-to-face. -face. Truth. So you got to watch a video to learn how to do it. And that's just the way it is. And, and, and that's the way books were for people that, you know, moved to the frontier and didn't really know how to farm because they weren't farmers before that time. So they're good as supplements. I think it's, I think all of these things need to be seen as supplements rather than, uh, and, and the degree to which you keep them at arm's length is certainly up to you. You know, I mean, the Amish do use the internet. They only use it for business purposes. <laughs> Right. So, so let me be clear yeah. though that so I, I do have a little bit of a of a mystical concern about the internet being a portal for demons. I'll I'll admit that. But what I'm what I'm actually trying to talk about is just that there are first article distinctions in the way communication functions and, and that, you know, again, a letter will have a different impact on you than an email will have. That is neither good nor ill. Both of them can be good or ill depending on their use, but they're going to become mm. more ill the less you understand their distinction. And if you think yeah. they're all the same, it's going to cause all sorts of problems. Yeah, I think they have to be understood. And I think that even above books, you do have to prioritize the process of observation and then comparison of your observation with scripture, because that's how you actually understand people's, what Jesus calls fruits. And that's how you learn how to judge things. So. For example, I just flabbergasted a guy a month ago when we were having a conversation and he was complaining about the way that Lutherans articulate the doctrine of justification of all things. Well, of course. And I, okay. And, and I said, I said that I don't think that a lot of them actually believe in their own doctrine of justification because they would behave differently and much less insecurely with each other. Amen. And just generally in life, they would be more confident 
and more peaceful if they actually believe that God had reconciled the world to himself in Christ, that the way that they were living would actually reflect their belief in God's propitiation for the sake of the blood of Christ. They would just think about everything differently that way. Okay. And they wouldn't worry so much about what people thought of their performance because they would understand that Christ's performance for their sake was enough uh, and human judgments are very light by comparison. Okay. Those are all kind of like practical outcomes. You can find apostles expressing those things in the new Testament. You have to be able to compare the Bible with what you observe, not simply with what you're told via any medium, because books in this way can function differently as a medium, but words can say lots of things, whether you're getting them from the screen or from a page, you have to compare that with what is actually happening and what you've observed. And that's, that's why we've been integrating over the past several episodes, demons, <laughs> yeah. discussion of demons with history, because history is just an expansion on a level above the individual of the kind of reflection and contemplation that biblically speaking, you're supposed to do about your own life. And that's just called repentance so that you understand what has occurred, what is evil, what has been good, all of that. And you can only do that by thinking about what has happened. You said in episode 60, books can hijack your capacity to put things together for yourself. And that, that caused some people some trouble. We talked about it again. You want to just kind of go back to that for a moment? Yeah, because because you have to understand that books can do the same thing that people are much more familiar now with the internet doing. And this is more a temptation for the learned than the unlearned, obviously, for that reason. But it's a temptation to take things said in books by some eminent person or whatever, and to just repeat those as if they're obviously true, rather than going through the process of the formation of wisdom, whereby you compare what is said, formally stated doctrine, what is said with what is done, also by the person stating the doctrine. And then you say, okay, so that's what this is worth. That's what the truth of this is. This is how this actually plays out, right? And that integration of life with talk or with speech is what we're looking at biblically and what we're actually aiming at in this podcast is the growth of wisdom, both about history and politics, but also about one's own life. And that can't happen if you just take books. And this is not just a point about achieving certain goals. Like you need to read a book about permaculture and then actually begin to practice permaculture. You read a book about eating differently and you begin to actually to eat differently. It's the point that there can't really be a divorce between action and thought. If there is a divorce, there's some kind of hiccup along the way. And you probably actually believe something different than what you're telling yourself you believe because your actions are so much at variance with what you think you believe. Similarly, in modern American history, we said last week, here's what the National Security Agency did, and they were very good at it, right? So whatever we say America is about, whatever we say it's supposed to be, or we look back nostalgically on at this point, you know, the 1980s as a time of peace and freedom or something. Well, here's what was happening, right? Here's what the regime was actually doing. And then, okay, compare that to the constitution, right? And see like what is actually true, what is actually happening. And then understand that if you're trying to protect the constitution, here's what needs to stop, Okay, but don't take it for granted that because you liked Ronald Reagan, those things weren't actually corroding the Constitution in his administration at his behest and the behest of others. Right. Don't just take the speech for granted. And books are just that they're they're extended speech, they're recorded speech, they're recorded thought. So you you still are under obligation to compare them with with life and to co- compare them ultimately with the book, capital B, you know, Tobiblion, the book, which judges all of life. So it's, it seems to me that the book is uh, the realm of theory and wisdom is the realm of reality. And it's not that the theory never has any impact on that, but that if you're not going to dwell in both, 
then you're only going to dwell on one. Uh, live in a world of theory, just read a lot of books. And what we're encouraging is, again, that th- that's insufficient, whether that is a bunch of books scattered across you know, Discord pages or whether that is you sitting in a corner reading and reading and yeah. reading. Yeah. Uh, that somehow yeah, human, human interaction has to has to happen. Yeah, yeah. So, so you mentioned something a moment ago about you know saying you do one thing while doing another and testing. So I, I think that's a nice segue into tracking apps, which tell you, oh, we're going to give you this, we're going to give you this. We're going right. to take all this other information we're not going to tell you about. You'll sign a thing after you scroll past it, but you know, yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't want to dwell on things that are probably so commonplace to the listeners that they would just be boring, especially to the two of us. Like, you know, if you're not paying for it, you are the product, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. Everybody's sort of familiar with that. The significance that I find here is that people are shocked and outraged when they find out that the government might be watching them, even though, like I said last time, that's totally predictable. <laughs> if you know anything about the history of our government um, in the 20th century and the 21st, but you are wearing things that are keeping track of biological functions and telling you about yourself and trying to help you fix yourself. And people do that voluntarily and just as sort of a normal matter. Like you have to go out and catch the dolphin to tag him, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. And, but, you know, you're wearing your tag proudly. Yeah. Like yeah, some been sort there. of been there. animal that's never known freedom, you know? But part of and it was the so, lie, too. So, so I, I had an aura ring. You familiar with these? I, I'm not. It's no, like a I bio tracker. You know, okay. the, the goal is, you know, Fitbit does a little bit. It, the goal was to go further and it was to track sleep cycles and try to work on all this kind of stuff. Anyway, point okay. is, again, you know, it's tracking a lot of different stuff. And what was I was sold on is it would give me this information to help me. But then all that information is you know going elsewhere. Uh, here's another example. Right. I almost did 23andMe, decided not to. Um, but 23andMe, right? So here you go. You're going to get this printout of all of your DNA heritage, your genetic heritage. But you also are not any longer the owner of that information. Uh, that the 23andMe re- retains the right to own that, from my understanding. Right. So like, right. you're, you're always... You're always uh, involved in an inequivalent exchange of some form uh, in which you're not being told all of the scenario. Amplifying this all the way up to the government, you know, that's a nice nice thing to be paranoid about, but it doesn't even have to be that. No, it's just right. the fact that you are being taken advantage as you're, you're getting snookered, you're getting sold, you're getting taken. And at some point or another, that will bite you because you're opened up to uh, deception and thievery under your nose and you think it's a good thing. You've been sold into believing this is, again, I had my question that I opened the question, uh, the show with wasn't that great. I don't think, but you know, you've believed the collapse is the best thing that ever happened to you. <laughs> well, you're not even aware. Yeah. I mean, you're not even aware that this is the collapse. Like the collapse is not just the fact that the roads aren't as good as they used to be, or the shelves are somewhat bare, right? The collapse is that you are doing things regarding even your own body that, your grandparents, probably, certainly your great-grandparents, would find repellent and extremely strange and would be right to do so because they wouldn't even talk uh, in front of mixed company about certain biological functions. And you have apps to record your activity of said biological functions. And I'm not talking about sex. I'm talking about like your stomach, okay? <laughs> and you know your personal health. They had levels of privacy you haven't even considered having. And so they had spaces in life that were theirs. And, you know, you're giving up your heart rate and you're giving up your sleep pattern. And yeah, that information. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't even have to be the government, right? It could be some quote private corporation. It could be the hedge fund that owns the people that, you know, analyze your DNA or whatever it is that you're handing over. And you're handing that over for a certain amount of knowledge, which is always, I mean, I've done a lot of genealogy, not genetic stuff like 23andMe. They're always pushing that to people that are interested in genealogy. But honestly, if I did genetic testing, it wouldn't tell me anything I don't already know, uh, probably. And mm, people do it for some sense of identity. It's very sad because they want to feel like they're 
worthwhile or special or something, or they're secretly this somewhat more exotic European ethnicity or secretly Jewish or whatever it is that would give them a sense of interest and something to their life, some sense of significance, right? You know, and it's really sad that they're doing, in order to do that, they're, they're giving up this biological knowledge of themselves to somebody else in order to, by some means, get back what is of much less value even to themselves, which is the knowledge that they are 5% North African or something. I don't even know, right? And those, those kinds of, notice here how disclosure never runs in two directions, whether you're talking about a corporation or the government or something. The disclosures that they will make available to you, right? Tracking health information or genetic information or something, they could probably find out if they needed to, if they just altered certain medical privacy laws. And it's not really, I mean, the the health changes that you probably need to make in your life in order to get better sleep, you really could make without getting a watch like that. You could just go to bed at a reasonable time. (laughs) It's not that hard. You could get up earlier. You'd probably feel better. Stop checking the phone right before bed. Yeah, Yeah, right. Exactly. Like none of this None of the changes that are probably necessary in your life, whether it's your body mass index or your sleep or the rest of it, probably none of it is rocket science. And what I'm telling you is your great grandfather never talked about his stomach troubles in front of anyone except maybe his wife. And he was happier for it. And he was probably in much better health than you. And he probably just thought of things like sunshine and eating a sufficient number of like vegetables of a certain kind and liver. And he was doing a lot better than you. So a lot of this stuff, I think is honestly, it was common sense. You might have to rediscover it from the internet or a book or something. And that's wonderful. But what, what you're giving up in the disclosures that you're making about yourself and being tracked are not even necessary, let alone worthwhile. It's this augmented life idea. And the idea that augmenting it makes it better, which uh, kind of going media ecology again for a second. Uh, my my recent conclusion is that no matter how much better the augmenting might make it, apparently it makes it more fragile. Uh, yeah. it, it is just much yeah. more fragile, uh, right. easier to break. Right. You know, your glasses break, you can't see, and that's just the first step. Also, uh, to to go mystical again here, you know, disclosures <laughs> with the devil. Yeah. We've talked about the demons as as those who watch and wait. For opportunity, and I, yeah, you know, from right. the moment you said that, I just imagined myself as like, you know, a six-year-old, seven-year-old with my cable TV in the room, and this this thing just perched on it, you know, mm-hmm. just waiting, just waiting. It it knew I wasn't ready, you know, but it's just waiting for the right message, the right time to send the right thing. And uh, there's something there. So so what really bothers me in this so far, because I'm, I'm wrestling a little bit like, okay, so what's the big deal? I get it, Doctor Coons, I see where you're at, but I don't get the big deal, except for that again, when I am being told, give us this, we'll give you that. And then I'm getting not that, and you're taking more than this. I'm bothered. You're a thief. But now if this goes into some sort of like global cosmic war between light and darkness for my very yeah. soul level, wow. Yeah. Now I'm now I'm really concerned. Yeah. Because yeah, because the big deal and the collapse of privacy is not just a story very traditional on the American right about how government is too big. That's that's part of it. But a lot of this is not the government invading your privacy at this point. And when you personally become a part of the Internet of Things biologically, and your reality is now augmented by innumerable vaccinations and whatever else it is that you absolutely need to continue living a, you know, a quote, healthy life, a secure life. The significance is not that the government is too big. That is certainly part of it, but that's not the significance. The significance is that you cannot live without all of these utterly unnatural things, mm-hmm. and but you have no concept of life without them. You have absolutely no concept right. of life without them. And you get this, I mean, you you got this long before there was any debate about whether or not in order to go anywhere in life, you should be vaccinated according to some kind of schedule like cattle. 
I mean, quite literally, like cattle. This is a question if you watch insufficient amounts of TV and people are horrified <laughs> by the fact that you watch insufficient amounts of TV or they're just honestly confused. How can that be? <laughs> well, I mean, I wasn't born watching TV. So like, why would I have to do that? Whereas I actually do need a significant amount of vitamin D and you never go outside TV watcher. So what's wrong with you? The collapse of privacy, because it's about the soul, also has effects, I think, in the body. Because the soul and the body are intertwined naturally, creationally. So when the soul gets warped, the body also gets warped in accordance with the warp direction the soul needs to take. So the soul is taught through generally media, right? Whether it was TV or the internet or whatever. This is what you need in order to have a normal day. A normal day consists in this much time with the screen or this much time reading the newspaper in a previous generation or this much time listening to the radio, whatever the medium is for transmission. And the government may be part of that. I mean, historically in America, the government was not at least directly part of the media. That is changing a little bit now, but even now they're not directly trying to control the media. The media does that fairly willingly for mutually beneficial reasons. The real issue is that there are things that when they go away, like privacy, warp your soul desperately, as we talked about at the end of last week. And therefore, also, they're, they're going to end up warping your body because you'll be like, okay, well, the thing I need to do, even when I'm outside and the sun is shining, is to look at this screen. That's normal. That's normal. Hmm. And that is why this is such a big deal. The collapse of privacy is something that could kill a people, could kill a nation, because it's not merely economic. I mean, mere, and I, I, I know that sounds ridiculous, but I do mean that. It's not mere economic or military or political collapse. It's the collapse of your will to live in any kind of way that is sustainable, because it would be in any kind of way natural yeah and therefore self-reproducing yeah um, a couple thoughts there uh, I, I was standing in line the other day and because of censusolomon.net you can check it out uh i carry a bible with me everywhere i go and i actually was in line and i just took it out and started reading it while i waited for the line to move forward and it struck me how odd i felt it was like, this is this is strange to be standing in line staring at this thing in my hand trying to read it. I'm a bit distracted. Yeah, I can't really fanatic. focus. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. I'm just like, <laughs> I can't really focus on it very well the way I would like to. There's too much commotion going around. You know, I don't know if this would be the way I would choose to read and really enjoy this thing that I enjoy. But it's like, but there were like three other people right there with phones doing the same thing, right? Yeah, And, and right. like how strange it was to do that with a book. It was really a bizarre thing. Yeah. And then, and, and then it's not, you, you, you don't notice the strangeness when you're, when you're in the machine. And then it's something, I mean, if you, if you watch my other shows, I brought this up a couple of weeks ago. I think it's really worth yeah. repeating for the sake of our fans here. The sound of music didn't bring about a bunch of large families who sing together. <laughs> you know, Mr. Rogers didn't get you to play more with the kids in your actual neighborhood. What they did was they, they they fractured those very things, right? They gave the perception of them and they created people who would watch more of such things, but not actually be the things they watch. Strangely, yeah, I mean, we, right. we talked in the other episode about you become like what you watch and there's that too. Um, but what are you watching? Well, Mr. Rogers, you and some puppets, right? That, that's it. And so, yeah. no, you're not a community. No, you're not a neighborhood. Um, and, and so the warping of our expectations so that, yeah, you go outside and all you want to do is be back inside a box disembodied. And that this is directly tied to the loss of your will to really do anything. So, so once right. you put it down, you're like, what am I going to do? I don't really feel like it. You, you, don't, you, don't, you can't just see how that's, the, that's caused by it, but, but that's the cause of it. Right? Yeah, that's it the heart of yep. it, right? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And I think that that is why the advent of the smartphone is such a profound change. Because it's a time when the capacity for the screen to be there is no longer what's pejoratively called the couch potato, right? Where we actually recognize that soul and body are connected because the person is so devoted to the television set for the, you know, Zoomers listening in, this was an actual thing. 
so devoted to the television set that he's always on the couch. So his body starts turning into a potato shape. <laughs> there are many more of us that are potato shaped at this point. And I think that that has to do with the multiplication of the screens. And so that we are all always, we, we're online. We're yeah. online all the time. And that changes souls. So it also changes bodies. And I don't even need to know about the souls at first because I can observe this happening from the bodies. I can see that the bodies are strangely shaped, that they're going to have all kinds of horrible health problems, that this is true for nine-year-olds the way it used to be true for you know 67-year-olds. So I can observe this change in putting all of us online, right? Obviously, the things that were possible on an anonymous internet where you had to kind of look around for information are not going to be possible with everyone online. So we are like cattle herded into certain pens, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And then in those pens, there's a certain <laughs> called feed and we see how we're like yeah. not even human anymore. Yeah. There's feed and I have my feed and my feed gives me stuff that I want and I want more. So I stay there and I keep eating and eating and I get fatter and fatter. And some of this is like metaphorical, the language I'm using, and it's supposed to be metaphorical, but a lot of it's literal too. Because the more that I'm looking at the feed, the fatter I literally become, not just metaphorically and on and on and on. So the change here, the collapse in privacy, the collapse in my capacity for contemplation, willpower, like you said, and we've talked about that before, all of that is going to change me into a different kind of a person. Yeah. yeah I, I love that you use the metaphor as you and I have you know, in the past uh, talked about my overuse of metaphor in trying to describe you know, various ideas. And part of it is my own experience that a lot of the metaphors aren't metaphors anymore. Yeah. What you just yeah. said. What you just said. Yeah, and so right. you know, we've already yeah. talked about familiarity with the internet, and right. you know, familiarity is a word historically connected to various forms of magical evils. And you know, a familiar is something that you would have near you in order to be able to uh, resonate with its life force, and therefore achieve more of will magic in the present world. And so, well, here you are with your little tool. You know, it's not a cat. Um, mm -hmm. But it's got a picture of a cat when you open it and, and all that kind of stuff. So the, the collapse of metaphor into reality is honestly something I'm, I'm observing in my own linguistic <laughs> world. And, and I love yeah. it, actually, because it, it, it clarifies things. Uh, and I recently uh, was at a talk uh, someone gave on the Hebrew language, talking about Hebrew as caveman language and that this is its value because it's so concrete. Uh, the words are too few for you to obfuscate too much. And I think maybe uh, common sense is doing that when it pays attention to English. You realize that we don't have as many words as we think we do. And a lot of them overlap more uh, because, you know, we've, we've created distinctions in order to lie, basically, and uh, in order to, to use sophistry to push ideas. And as you peel away those layers, you find that we're, we're just not as good as we think we are. So as you point out, you know, you're going to eat the feed for the cows, Right, you're gonna be herded into these pens, and and therein you will be fattened. Oh goodness, for the day of slaughter, even. Uh, what could that mean? I don't know. But I'm gonna coin the phrase "walking potato" because uh, that's probably the title of the show. There you go. <laughs> I think that what you, I, I so w what we're saying is that anything working against this is not just a reclamation of privacy. It's a reclamation because it's of privacy. It's of humanity. You are reclaiming humanity, the capacity to be human. And that's mm -hmm. going to involve things that, depending on your age and your ex life experience, are going to feel at first unnatural. This is one of the great ironies, is that what is natural, for example, you're largely not connected to a media source throughout the day, Yeah, is going to feel yeah. unnatural and weird and difficult. Yeah. I, I recently have, uh, I worked in a work environment that was cubicle based and I picked up the habit of having headphones in all day. And after a year and a half at home like that, I began to realize that that wasn't really the best way to operate in my household. And that, that was good. That was good. Um, and I really pulled back from there, but more recently I was like, okay, I still like to listen to my music in the morning while I'm studying, you know, I'll listen to music while I drive, uh, you know, yada, yada. what happens if I de-augment 
And I was amazed how hard it was to go a single day without listening to music. It was, it was ridiculously hard. It drained me. I was depressed. And the next day I was like, no, I got to listen to music today. And now I, I don't know. I don't know what that means. Right. But it is, it is stunning how dehumanizing it feels to stop augmenting your life with things that are not human. And right. let, let me just go back. Also, you, you said the reclamation of the human, the reclamation of the human spirit, right? And that's exactly what we've been giving up is the human spirit. We've been adopting a machine, a robot mentality to be treated like, again, chattel, uh, to be treated like less than human. And so if you want to reclaim the human spirit, it's got to be without the machine spirit. And I'm not saying throw out all your machines, never do anything, da, 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 da. you know, don't, don't overreact. But see the distinction here and and that the human spirit really is a thing that is being drained from us right now. Yeah. 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 And I, I think this this is one of the grounds of what many listeners have noted as optimism. And I, I think I've used that word. But the reason that I am optimistic about the kinds of things that we say on here and the expansion, not only of these ideas, but because of these ideas, the expansion of the gospel is not because I think that everything is going to go great. I just don't think that that is actually the central problem in any given human being's life. I think the central problem in any given person's life is a spiritual problem, a problem of the human spirit, of its capacities and self-knowledge, and theologically speaking, of its repentance or unrepentance. And because of that, appealing to that, saying that is covered under so many layers of filth, digital filth, right? Mm-hmm. Not just things that you look at that you shouldn't look at, but the ways that you're being watched, the fact that you're always being watched, the fact that you're always a product and you're always being marketed to, like your sole value is monetary. That's your reason for existence is to consume stuff. Okay. An appeal to that is very powerful for people because what we're saying is that they are actually worthwhile enough to be changed and to be unplugged and to be disconnected. Hmm. If we really thought that human beings were just basically, you know, sentient cattle, cattle with linguistic capacities, then let them stay online all the time. Let them look at their phones when they're walking outside. Let them pay more attention to their phones and their various screens than they do to their family, even when they're all in the same room. It's fine if that happens. Who cares? The cow's only real purpose at this point is production while she's alive and then meat when she's dead. That's her purpose. The rest of it is human sentimentality. So if that's all I think people are, then I'm not going to appeal to it or, th- or tell them that they need to change or ask them to think carefully about what's going on in their lives. We are investing human beings with enormous dignity by saying that they are worthy and capable of contemplation. They are worthy and capable of massive change in their lives. They are worthy and capable of having reflective souls. To me, that it's very hopeful because that is something that when you say that to people, they want to hear. They don't want to hear that their life is as meaningless as they experience it as being. What do you mean by going dark? Going dark means most simply that I unplug from my feed, that I decide to become human, at least for some part of the day. And I think if you think about the internet, like sort of a drug, then you understand that like caffeine, it might be valuable, but too much of it is actually really bad for you. What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? <laughs> so um, I will, maybe um, one of our sponsors one day will be Postum, which I think only I and Willie Grills and, and the Mormons drink, but non-caffeinated beverage. But I, I think that you need to think about the internet um, and your connection to it the way that you think about caffeine. So if it's a tool for productivity of some kind, that's great. But if you think that you need to be on it all the time in order to get anything done hmm. of any kind, I'm a little less certain of that. Yeah. yeah. I'm not absolutely certain it's bad all the time for absolutely everyone. I don't really know. I don't know what your life is like, but I can tell you it's not natural 
and nobody needed it before it existed in order to exist. And when it goes away, they won't need it either. So if that's true, and you understand that you don't need to be vaccinated against COVID-19 in order to be safe and secure in life, then maybe these other things that you didn't need to augment reality before they existed also aren't quite as necessary as perhaps we have believed. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I say detethering or untethering, I mean going yeah. dark. That that's the yeah. kind of language I picked that up from Tim Ferriss way back. Well, when okay, and comparing it to de-drugging, I think is pretty helpful because yeah. the the blue light experience, uh, the amplification of adrenaline that is caused by kind of screen watching in general, um, yeah, it, it is like that. So how much of it can you endure, and and what good is it doing? You know, what's the real exchange? One of the other questions I've wrestled with recently, uh, yeah. thinking about kind of drug use slash medicine use in general, say caffeine, chocolate, sugar, internet, what have you, the real question comes down like, how is this, how is this substance in your life impacting all your actual human relationships? You know, so, so you took a Tylenol, did it make your life better or worse? And that, you know, Tylenol's got its own debate in the discord right now, but, but what is this doing to your human relationships? And Again, I can only just confess and witness my own past. There's no question that detethering has enhanced every human relationship I have across the board, every single one. And the only exception being those that only want to communicate via the internet. Yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> those ones have not enhanced, right? Uh, so, yeah, the, absolutely. I think I cut you off. Did you want to say something else? No, no. I think I think going dark is related to, let's say, spiritually, the capacity not to be watched. And that is very important. And I, I don't just mean by demons and I don't just mean by the government or by Google or something. I also mean by other people. There is no form of Christian spirituality that has survived for any length of time in church history that doesn't involve solitude. Obviously, you see it with Christ in the Gospels. And that involves the capacity to be before God and only God. You won't have strength to be in front of other in front of men with their demands, good or bad, unless you are before God. And without doing that in the terms of the Sermon on the Mount in secret, that is alone, solitarily, you don't really know yourself. I'll say that quite plainly. You don't you yeah. don't really know yourself. You don't know whom you're dealing with when you're dealing with yourself. Yeah. I, I, yeah, again, as I've pulled out of a lifetime of cable, movie, everything, and then internet, video games, and, you know, I was an athletic kid, I had friends, all this kind of stuff, but but I just imbibed a lot. The the less I've imbibed, the more the question, wait, who am I? Has actually come up <laughs> yeah, because so yeah. much of what I identified with yeah. is effectively a brand of some kind, yeah, right? right. I mean, right. when I finally realized that Star Wars like, is just the most meaningless thing in the world and I had placarded it. I mean, it's been a long time since, but, but I, I had placarded it. I just feel so vindicated over everywhere. here. Everywhere. God, God be praised <laughs> for that. Um, to handle solitude is huge. The, the, yeah. the fact that when you're alone, that question, who am I? And whether or not you put it in the sense of before God doesn't matter initially in that when you're asking who am I, you are asking the justification question. You are facing an epistemological terror, which you must find to be either freeing or enslaving. And of yeah. course, the, the enslavement is going to be, what can I go to to take away my fear? Yeah. And it's just going to turn on Netflix again. I mean, that is, uh, just to be fair to here, I mean, how many people are are drunk on this stuff because they can see how bad it is, because they do feel how bad it is, and because they just don't think there's anything they can do about it? I mean, I think yeah, there's something there is to that nothing else. too. Yeah, um, right. But yeah, the capacity to be alone. Uh, I mean, I'm going to tell one more story. In, in a little out of school, there's a, a young gentleman who moved here recently to join the church and kind of work on, you know, post. Uh, post-economic uh, collapse survival church life, and he you know, hopes to have this altar be where his kids and grandkids are, are, are baptized and, and uh, commune and all this stuff. And uh, one of the hardest things early on, he bought a house. I'm like, he kind of wanted us to come over. And I'm like, dude, dude, just be in your house for like a couple days. Just do it. You're never going to get this chance again the rest of your life, probably. You just, just own it. Be a ghost. Live alone. Like later that week, he's like, that was the best advice you ever gave me. That was such a good advice. Oh my goodness. Because that chance to just be 
think, ponder, wait, consider. It opened up avenues of, um, well, honestly, prayer for him uh, that, that hadn't been there before. And the only reason I could give that advice is because, again, the more I go dark, the more those are the opportunities that have opened up in my life. And they're just, as you say, they're just so valuable. You, you cannot underestimate the value of being alone with your fear and coming through the other side of it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That goes along with a couple more things. And I know we're, we're getting close-ish to time. But the idea that there are places where you are not being watched in the senses that we've been talking about, places to obtain privacy. I would, I would say there, there are at least two others in addition to solitude, wherever you find that. One is the family. And I, I don't mean that you're, every family is wonderful or that the family isn't engaging in mutual judgment or something. But my family is not a place where I am pretending to be somebody I am not which I'm generally not doing. But in addition to that, it's also not a place where people need me to be someone, which is really only a partial view of who I am. With friends, in the same sense, I would say this is the difference between there are people who call me to my face, Koontz, and people who call me Adam. And people that call me Adam always know me better. And I don't even have to tell them which to call me. It just is the way that it works. And that provides a level of privacy or um, openness that relationships, which are more distant, let's say, never provide. So you need to form those kinds of relationships, if it's friendships or your immediate family or whatever it might be, where there is a capacity for openness because solitude is not enough for anybody. It is essential, but it's not enough. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going. I don't get a, a, from before. A, Go ahead. A place where you simply are yourself without other things uh, intervening or things that need to be accomplished or whatever the case might be. The third place I would say is church. And, and I, I say it for this reason that I, I do not think this is possible in most American churches because they have functioned as social clubs, but the reason that church really should just be, um, I will advocate in this case, the Anglican ideal, which Lutherans often aspire to, but rarely achieve, which is the service is basically the same wherever you go all the time. This is also the case for Roman Catholics prior to the Second Vatican Council. You can be quiet and peaceful, even in a room with 250 other people, where you all know what you're doing and you're doing the same thing. And you don't have to think about, you don't have to be self-conscious about it. The point of that, (laughs) the point of that focus on external conformity was to permit interiority. I didn't have to perform externally because I just do what I'm supposed to do, whether I'm the, the priest or whether I'm attending or whoever I am. When the externalities are prescribed, that permits interiority. I think that this is one of the basic mistakes we've made culturally. We thought that allowing people to be externally vastly different from each other and what they did and said and how they, how they behaved was going to permit interior difference to flourish. Instead, we have massive external difference. Everyone does whatever he wants, behaves however he wants. And, in, and interiorly, we are more homogenous than ever. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that external homogeneity of prescribed action, let's say in the church service permits interior reflection in the same sense that if I have the church service memorized, that's going to permit things for me spiritually that are not permissible when I have to keep looking at a medium, whether that's a screen or whether that's a book. So there are things, what, I, what I'm saying is that privacy is, you're only really capable of privacy and the things that privacy allows positively, such as contemplation, such as reflection, such as fairly deep change in a person's life, realizations you couldn't otherwise have. There's some level of comfort that has to be present for those things. And that comes through security, not nebulously insured by the NSA, but the security of 
I know what's going on here or in the family circle, I know who these people are or by myself. (laughs) Now I'm beginning to find out who this person is. You have to have those things in order for development and change to take place. It's about knowing who you are, which again, in solitude, you discover it, but also, as you mentioned, family, friends, and the fellowship of the faith are a place to learn who you are from those who are nearest to you. And in this, the word home comes to mind. Yeah. Uh, Family is home. Yeah. Friends are home. A true church is is home. And home then, at least in, in the way we're talking about it, is the place where you don't have to try. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Home is home is a place where justification by works is not happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's something tremendously freeing about that. Yeah. And it, yeah. of course, grace will help things go better in such places. Man, your point about you know the more we externa- externally are diverse, the more internally we actually are operating largely on the same principles of you know belly worship uh, is really really something altogether. So you mentioned we're near the end of the hour, and and we really are. Uh, we've covered I think most of our points. Well, no, not your yeah. father sees in secret, but yeah. um, I mean maybe that's what you want to use to kind of wrap up our series yeah. on collapse. Because, yeah. yeah, as we go into rebuilding, I'm going to start out talking about the Byzantines not what they called themselves, but that's what we call them. And I'm going to start there because they are the people who survived the collapse with which most people are most familiar, which is the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, for which they did feel responsible, despite the fact that they were headquartered elsewhere. How did they survive that? How did they do that? What happened afterward? The stories of rebuilding that we're going to talk about with the Byzantines, as well as a couple other instances are stories about understanding what happens when you understand which God controls the destiny of the nations and the destiny of men to whom you are answerable alone. When you understand who he is and fear him, that changes everything. It also changes your capacity to survive and also to flourish after collapse. And whatever is coming for us, however barren the shelves get at the grocery store, we are still here. So we have to do something and we are still answerable to him. And we need to remember that, that no matter who else is watching us, he is watching and we're not answerable to those other powers. We're answerable to him. So whatever I do, whoever I am with whomever I am, wherever I go, uh, he sees and he is my father. And with that in mind, we will consider in the weeks to come how to rebuild and how to build again if uh, everything has been destroyed. Listening to A Brief History of Power, you know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, 
and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org.